All right, if you would, remain standing. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We will pick up our text in verse 5. Paul says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophecy, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be so, many kinds, uh, many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you may seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the result then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who accompanies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, they will, will they not say that you are all out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and he is judged by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed and so Falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. 
Let all things be done for edification. If anyone seeks, speaks in a tongue, let, it be, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For if you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not, under, not the author of confusion out of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. If anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Lord, upon the teaching of your word, we ask that you would grant to us by the power of your Holy Spirit the blessing of understanding. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for this gift, and we ask now you would bless the remainder of our service in Jesus' name. And everyone sat? Amen. You may be seated. Quite a long chapter, and certainly, um, you know, it's not a chapter without its difficulties, as we'll see as we're looking into what the scriptures have to say here. And certainly, in some cases, it's not without offense. There are things that Paul says sometimes that are really hard, and, you know, it's amazing how uh, he, he never holds back. Uh, he just lays it all out there, and he makes it very clear in this section of scripture that what he says is ordained of God, and not only that, but that it is anointed scripture of God. So it's, we do well to take it to heart. And we also do well to understand what is being said here. And my attempt this morning will be to give you the best that I can possibly do with the understanding of these things. And not only that, that when we have understanding of God's word and we apply it into our lives, that we can count on this, that it is the best and that we will be satisfied and we will be edified if we will simply embrace what God says in his word. He starts out in verse one. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So, you know, easily this verse could have been at the end of chapter 13, where Paul had told us that what the greatest of, it, of them all, all of everything is love, that all the gifts that the Spirit gives, unless they are exercised within love, they really, they don't have the purpose and the meaning that God has intended for them to have. Now, 
There are some gifts that can be exercised, not necessarily in love, but just with gentleness, kindness, and, and charity, if you will. And there can be some good from that. But Paul made it very clear to us that what has to be the motivation, the inspiration, and the power behind all gifts is agape. God's love, his kind of love. And, and so he tells us here in the beginning of this chapter, he says, pursue love. And it's the word agape, pursue agape in your life. Uh, and if you are like me, you understand that that pursuit of agape is a lifelong quest because I can quickly fall out of that, that agape love my exercising of it I'm talking about. And I can become very fleshly and carnal. And so God wants us to pursue that in our lives. And then on that as well, to desire spiritual gifts. And here in this chapter, Paul is going to encourage the use of gifts, but not only encourage the use of them, but to give us some direction in them. And of course, we know this, that in the church in Corinth, they had a problem. They emphasized the gift of tongues above everything else. That was the gift that everybody wanted to have. And when they gathered together, there was an overemphasis and an overexercising of that particular gift. But Paul, as always in balance, he does not say, don't allow tongues within the service, but exercise them properly. He starts us out with pursue love, pursue agape. And as he's going through this, he's going to tell us that as we exercise those gifts, that the motivation behind our exercisings of gifts within the body of Christ is the edification of the body, which involves agape. It is a selfless love. In other words, the things that I do, it's because I want others to be blessed. And in blessing others, I too will receive a blessing. And obviously for them, as we have seen thus far in, the, in this book, this epistle, they had a problem with pride. They had a problem with, you know, wanting to be the one that was noticed all the time. And Paul brings it to a culmination here in chapter 14, bringing us to a place of understanding of how important it is that we and they exercise these gifts with that in mind, edification to the body of Christ. And so he's going to take the emphasis off of tongues and put it on prophecy because he tells us here, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And so we're going to take a look at that as we go through this section. In verse 2, he says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Tongues is our communication to God, not God's communication to us. You will be speaking in the power of the Spirit, but it will be it will all be mysterious for no one will understand that. Even, you know, uh, even with that gift, praying in tongues, speaking in tongues, it may be that you don't understand what you are speaking. 
You can, I will tell you that, because there's been times when I've asked the Lord that in my time of prayer and speaking in tongues, I've asked God to give me the interpretation of what I was praying. And I was blown away and encouraged to continue to use the gift, even when I may not have full understanding of it. It is a gift that I exercise by faith in praying to God. And Paul is making a point here that is misdirected in many circles of the church. And that is that there's an emphasis that the Spirit's not moving within the service unless somebody has spoken in tongues. And perhaps you've been at churches where that has been the emphasis and you know, you've come away. Maybe even perhaps even in your own heart you saw that as being that's when the Spirit is really moving. That's how we know when the Spirit is moving is when somebody is speaking in tongues. And for some, they've seen that happen and they get freaked out. And part of that, and I, I think it's because of the fact that it's not done properly. It's not done with understanding. And Paul lines it all out for us here that he says that if somebody speaks in, in the assembly, in tongues that there must be an interpretation because without it, and that's what he says here, without the interpretation, those who hear it are not edified. They don't understand. But understanding can be had and must be had if it's going to be done within the church assembly. And I, I want to point out here too because it is important, as we'll talk about as we get down in the chapter about interpretation, Paul points us to what the interpretation of the tongue should look like. Because I've been in services where somebody has spoken in tongue, at tongues, and then the interpretation goes something like this. My little children, I love you. Now that's, that's a great word from the Lord and it's, that's a safe word from the Lord because of the fact we know that his word bears that out. But Paul makes it very clear that the interpretation of the tongue is not God speaking to us, but us speaking to God. So therefore it will be in the form of a prayer and adoration and praise to God, not God speaking to us. And so this is how we test whether or not the gift that was exercised was from the Lord, the Holy Spirit, or it was just somebody a little over exuberant. It doesn't mean that what they prayed may be their prayer language, but it may not be what God intended for the body at that time. And so he makes that clarification here for us. Verse 3, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So Paul says, look, he says, this you can count on whenever exhortation uh, is given, whenever prophecy is given, that there is going to bring, it's going to bring comfort to the body. It's going to bring a building up, an edification to the church. And that's why he says it is the greater of the gifts. And that's what he had said earlier chapter 13 in the beginning of chapter 14 here. That's the gift to desire. If you, if you desire spiritual gifts, that's what we should do. We should desire them. And we should ask God and his Holy Spirit to reveal to us just exactly what it is that he has given to us. And to understand that that gift is not 
even though you will be exercising it, it is not, you're a part of it. So it, I, when I say this, but the gift is not for you, it's for the edification of the body of Christ. And that's, that's important. And the problem that they had in Corinth is that people were thinking that they were something special because they had a certain gift. And that made them more important in the body of Christ. But that's not what the gifts are given for. They're actually given so that others can experience it and be built up and drawn to the Lord. As he says there in verse three, he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort. He who speaks in verse four, uh, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the whole church. One who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them and comforts them. And when you speak in a tongue, you are edified and it is, that is a good thing. So Paul is not discouraging the use of the gift, but pointing out that it has limitations when it comes to the body. Verse five, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. When Paul says here, I wish you all spoke in tongues, it tells us that not everyone in the church in Corinth did speak in tongues. And it's a safe assumption in the church today, not everybody speaks in tongues. I've shared with you before that, you know, I know people who definitely baptized with the Holy Spirit, operating in the gifts of the Spirit. But that's not a particular gift that they have. They never receive that prayer language. They never have that, that gift of tongues. It doesn't mean that they're not baptized with the Spirit, and it doesn't mean they don't operate in the Holy Spirit. It just means that's a particular gift that God has not given them. Just this, in that same way, God has not given everybody the gift to teach has not given everyone the gift to preach. He has not given everyone those gifts that fulfill the offices in the church. There's a distinction that is there. And it's perfectly okay because the pastor's no better, no greater than any person within the body of Christ. We are, as a matter of fact, God makes sure in his word that we understand that as leaders in the body of Christ, that we are to be the chief servants among you, the chief doulos, the chief slaves in the body of Christ, that we're not exalted, we're not built up, we're not better. We are the under rowers of the ship. You guys are the ones that are on the top deck riding along. And so when it comes to the giving of the gifts, each gift has a purpose within the body of Christ. And if we're all exercising whatever gift it is that God has given to us, chapter 12 started to sit out there as Paul was delineating the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You remember when we were there and we looked into Romans chapter 12 as Paul has a, a, another list of the gifts that are there, some stated here in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, some additional gifts that are there. But Paul makes it very clear that it's the same spirit that gives the gifts to each individual and that it makes up the body as a whole. And we're grateful 
Because if everybody was an ear, what a funny looking body we would be. If everybody was a nose or a mouth or foot, you know, we appreciate how God has created the human body, don't we? I do. I, I appreciate the way that he's done it and then the varieties in which he has done it. It's amazing to me to, to just to look at God and his creation of humankind amazes me, you know, that we all are the same, but yet we can be very different at the same time. And boy, does that speak of the body of Christ. We're all the same, but yet we're very different all at the same time. So Paul makes it very clear, not everyone's going to speak in tongues, but yet they thought it was the most desirable gift and even that, that it was the greatest, but Paul tells them that it is not and more, that it is far, that as far as the body is concerned, it is only edified when there is interpretation. So. That begins at a point where it's telling us that when it comes to tongues, that it's not to be used within the body of Christ if there is no interpretation of it. And I'll address that a little bit when I get down here further. But now, brethren, verse 6, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? So Paul, Paul, Paul points them uh, to consider that if he had come to them speaking in tongues rather than teaching them by revelation, knowledge, and prophecy, or teaching, where would they be? If he had come to them and when he addressed them, it was only in tongues. He then points out that real, here in these next verses, real life examples to emphasize his point. You know, Paul makes it very clear that what is more important is that speaking in a way that everyone understands they can receive revelation and knowledge and prophesying and teaching. In verse 7, he says, Things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be what is known, what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. So Paul gives us these real life examples. And, uh, you know, he said that earlier in chapter 13 when he was talking about the gifts of the Spirit operating without agape, that it's an annoyance. That it's like a clanging symbol, you know. In other words, there's no real purpose to it other than just bang, 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 bang. And it's the same thing when it comes to the exercising of the gifts within the church. Without having that, that knowledge of what is being said, then it just becomes noise. It becomes uncertain what it is. And even though it may bring about intrigue, maybe it, you know, stimulates the curiosity or what it is. It doesn't have the purpose in which God intended it. And when he says, you know, he uses a musical instrument or a trumpet, you know, we're so far removed from that in battle today, 
you know, they don't have a trumpeter that calls the charge or retreat or whatever it may be. You know, it used to be that that they literally would direct the troops by the trumpet sounds to tell this to part of the troops to go to the left and these to go to the right and these to go forward and these to go back. I mean, and those trumpet sounds were very, very important and they all made sense. But without knowledge of, of what that meant, it makes no sense at all. And they would not be able to accomplish what they needed to accomplish. So Paul uses these real life examples to be able to, to show us the, the rationale of what he is telling them, that tongues is not the most important thing because of the fact there's so much of it without understanding. Verse 10, there are, and it may be so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. So in the same way, when you don't know a language, you will not understand what is not what is being said. I experience this when I go down to Mexico. Although my Spanish is getting better, I still fall miserably short. I cannot carry on a conversation and I cannot understand everything that is being said. And it frustrates me, hopefully enough to where I learn Spanish. So that when I go there, I can have a conversation. But you know, the fact is, is when they're speaking, I don't understand. And, and I don't like that. And if I didn't have an interpreter, there really wouldn't be much sense of me even going down there because I wouldn't be able to do the ministry that God has called me to do while I'm there. And so Paul is using that same kind of example here. Even so, verse 12, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. In other words, okay, you want spiritual gifts, Ask the Lord to give you the one that's going to build up the body of Christ, not the one that's going to make you look great and look, make you look more important or what you think is the most important out of them all. Verse 13, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So Paul is going to begin to tell us here that it's essential that if, you're, if you feel led to speak in a tongue within a church service, and if you don't know that somebody has the gift to interpret, that you need to pray for the interpretation before you even speak. Because you need to know that without that interpretation, it's out of order. And that's one of the things that Paul is doing here. Even though I think many would like it if Paul would give us this step-by-step -step what's supposed to happen within the church to give us an order of everything that takes place. Instead, what Paul gives us, he tells us what is out of order when it takes place. Because there's an assumption that the gifts are going to be used within the body of Christ. But with that, that there needs to be order and this is how it's to be done. Now, I will say this, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I had a friend of mine, a Jewish friend of mine, who invited me to come to his son's bar mitzvah. And uh, it was a, a somewhat progressive Jewish synagogue. In other words, it's not, it wasn't Hasidic or Orthodox. As a matter of fact, they won't invite you to their, their services. But uh, the Reformed and, uh, uh, I can't think of the name of the other one. But anyways, 
I went to the, to the service and I was totally amazed as I watched the service takes, take place, how much our church service resembles what they do. In our service, our order of service is much like it has been for thousands of years within the Jewish synagogues. And that's where that makes sense because that's where the church started out. The church started out as a bunch of Jews gathered together and they only knew how to do church one way. And so that's what they did. And part of what Paul addresses here when he's talking about women being silent in the church has to do with how their services were conducted with men on one side and women on the other. And the talking across and how that was out of order. And so Paul brings all this in there. And so my point is this, that even though he may not be spelling out for us the exact way that a church service needs to go or should go, he points out to us how it should not go. And that's really most important because what it leaves open is the move of the Holy Spirit to lead a church service in the way that he wants to. You know, I got a friend of mine that uh, they do two opening songs. He gets up there and teaches and, and worship is at the end of the service. Really messes with the people who don't like to show up for worship and they only show up for the, well, the teaching. Because they show up, there's two songs, they think they're safe, they get the teaching and then boom, they get nailed. Here's the worship. I don't understand it, believe me, I, that kind of mindset. I absolutely, I love being able to express to the Lord my heart in song. And, and I appreciate the songs that exclaim the goodness, the greatness, the power, the might, the glory of God. It gives me an opportunity, even if I don't sing it real loud, I can still sing unto the Lord. And that's the way that it should be. It should be that every one of us can't wait to get here and show up early to make sure we don't miss out on doing worship. Because it's all about Him and not about us. And as I focus on Him and I worship Him, then I am edified. It's natural, it's spiritually natural that as I worship him, that I will be built up. And so the more that I do that, the more I will be edified. Verse 13, therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So here we have it, Paul says that you, it's okay to pray in tongues and not have understanding. And it still can be fruitful in our lives, but it's not fruitful to the body. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving thanks? Since he does not understand what you say, for you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. If I thank my God, I speak with tongues. I, excuse me. I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Once again, he's saying there are those that don't, but that he indeed does. Yet in the church, even though he had that 
gift, he said, I'd rather speak five words of my under, with my understanding that I might teach others also than 10,000 words and a tongue. Once again, emphasizing the unimportance of that gift compared to the teaching of the word of God. An understanding of what's going on is really what's important. And he says it there that if somebody speaks in a tongue and they don't understand and you say amen, how do they know what to say amen to? That when we say amen, we're in agreement with what has been prayed. It's not the tag on the end of a prayer that gives it significance. When I say amen to somebody else's prayer, that means I agree with what you just prayed. May it be so. And Paul says it's important that there's understanding so that we can, that we can say amen. He says in verse 20, brethren, do not be, uh, be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. So he's pointing them to, really, to some of the things he'd been speaking already within this epistle. The fact is, is that they had been acting like little children very self-centered, very selfish, very cliquish. You know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of this, I'm of that. They had not been exercising maturity in faith and practice. And Paul says that when you are, are so focused on you and the exercising of your gift and you think that's the most important thing, that what you are doing is you're exercising malice towards other because you don't care for them. You only care about yourself. And that's intolerable. That's something that God says, no. That, that's not the body. That's not the church. And that we must have in mind and in purpose others. That what we do should be others-centered, including the exercising of the gifts that God gives us to exercise. So he tells them, he says, in understanding, be mature and to realize, grow up. Remember he had said earlier, he said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I acted like a child. But now that I'm a man, I act differently because I no longer am self-centered. I care about others more than I do about myself. That's the, that's the big rift, isn't it? Because I'm always having to battle with my flesh in that regard because I think more highly of myself than I ought to more often than what I should. And I have to fight with that and to realize that I need to put down my self-centeredness, my selfishness, and to consider others more important than me. That's why the Lord gave me my wife and my daughter because there's no place more difficult to do that in, than in the home. And especially when, you know, I've got such a great wife who serves me constantly. She's a great example of what a servant should be. And so she's always showing me up. And, uh, and, and when I do something that I should not, it's right there in my face what I should be doing that I'm not. That makes sense? I hope so. Because it is, it is the most difficult place. It's not hard for me, well, I shouldn't say. It. It's always difficult for me. It's not as hard for me to do that within the body of Christ, right? Because I don't want you guys to see the real ugly me, so I don't act that way like I do around my family. 
right? You know, you guys hopefully will never see me lose my temper. I wish I could say my wife's never seen me lose my temper. Yeah, that is not exercising self-control as the scripture says that I should, whether it's to my wife or to any others. It is difficult, but not impossible. And I think that's one of the things they have to remember. We exercise that in the home and it becomes easier to exercise that within the body of Christ. And especially because I don't know about you, even when I was in the world before I knew Jesus, I could not stand a two-faced person. I couldn't stand somebody that said one thing and did something else. And I dislike that even more so within the body of Christ. So I don't want to be that. I want to be genuine. The way that I act before you is the way that I act all the time. That I don't put on a show Sundays and Wednesdays or other times when I'm with you, but that that's who I really am because I'm lazy and I don't like to have to work at it. I want it to be the natural thing that I'm doing in my life. So that when you see me, if you say, boy, I can't stand that guy, he's a jerk. Well, that's probably how I am all the time. Hopefully not. So Paul says, let us be mature in understanding. Verse 21, and the law that is written with men of other tongues and other lips will be, excuse me, will I speak to this people? And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are a sign for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, I've got to tell you, this is, this is where you come into the part of chapter 14 that there is, it begins to be difficult to understand. Because Paul will tell us in a little bit that tongues are for believers. But yet he says here, it's not. So what is he talking about here? Well, the quote here in verse 21 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, where the prophet Isaiah announces judgment to the people of Israel. They did not receive the word of the prophets who spoke to them in Hebrew. So now they will hear the voice of men in other tongues and other lips. The Assyrian invaders spoke a language the Israelites could not understand. And it was an example of judgment to the Israelites. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. So when he says that tongues are not for believers... It is because when they were spoken to in this foreign language, it did not bring them to the repentance that God intended that for. In other words, God withheld speaking to them in a language they could understand, hoping that their hearts were turned toward him. And, and they, they were unbelievers. They refused to believe. And because of that, it's not, it, the tongues was not for them. Therefore, tongues are for a sign. We see that in Isaiah 20, the 28 passage. Tongues were a sign of judgment upon the Israelites. Foreigners who spoke in unknown tongues invaded their country. Paul is saying that today also tongues are for a sign. In Isaiah 28, the strange tongues were not a blessing but a curse. 
And Paul is warning that we are to take heed it, um, that it not be the case now that by dwelling on the gift you forget the giver and what was designed for you as a blessing may prove to you to be a curse. In verse 23, he says, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? As a matter of fact, I have heard of experiences of others where they have gone to churches where it was um, that the gift of tongues was used in exercise that they came away with going, those people were nuts. They were doing crazy things. And, and it can be that way. But if it is done properly, people do not come away with that kind of interpretation of what is going on. Myself, personally, I've never been exposed to anything in the use of the gifts that was not done in a biblical way. I don't have a bad example in my life to point back to, to say, oh man, I went to this church and this is what had happened. I've had conversations with people who are on the hyper side of Pentecostalism. As a matter of fact, I have friends of mine that, that are, and some were, um, that were very influential in my coming to a place of receiving of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts in my own life. I refer to them as pew-jumping, uh, pew, pew chandelier-swinging, tongue-talking Pentecostals. They were crazy, man. They were. But praise be to the Lord, they since have read, studied the word and found that that's not really the proper way in which it was to be done. And so they've repented of that. Not repented of the gifts, but the, the operation of the gifts in which they had been using them. And Paul, that's what he's lining out for us here in this chapter as to how it should be used. And if it's done in its proper way, it is a thing of beauty. That I can acclaim to. Being in a church service where the gifts were operated, and in particular, there was a tongue that was spoken. And the pastor said, thank you, Lord, for that. Now we wait for the interpretation. And somebody spoke a prophecy. And he said, thank you, Lord, for the prophecy. Now we wait upon the interpretation of the tongues. And as we waited, the interpretation came. And what beauty it was. It was, it was an ex exclamation of the beauty and the glory of God and a praise to him like I've never heard before. And I got to tell you, it was, not, it was not like man. It was like the spirit of God. And when it is exercised in its beauty, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing that God has given to us in the body of Christ. Unfortunately, the misuse has directed the church more than the proper use. And because of that, many are afraid to even experience it at all. And they feel, it, they feel much more comfortable coming to a setting where it is not done whatsoever. And because of the fact, if there's an emphasis on the teaching of the Word of God, there's going to be a lot that's going to be received as you come to the service. And I'll point to our church. We don't have the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, those gifts, in a Sunday service like we used to. There was a time that we did on a Sunday morning where that was in operation. 
But what took, what took us out of that and away from that was the misuse, because it happens. It turns out that the same person gets up every week and speaks in a tongue, and usually it's the same interpretation, and it's the same this and the same that, and it becomes very obvious that now this is not the spirit, this is our flesh. And so the easier thing is, well, just don't do it. But let me tell you something. My heart's desire is that we would start having something on a Sunday night where we would gather together and give opportunity to gather together to worship the Lord. And that if the Spirit desired to let the gifts be operated in our midst, in particular the sign gifts, that we would do so. That's a good place for it to start. And then it can branch out from there. And if we keep it within the framework which God has given to us, then we're going to be okay. And as long as it is addressed, if it's not done properly, and as long as it's addressed in love, it's not offensive, and we need to understand that because somebody does something that might not be quite right, it, we don't shun them or get rid of them or rebuke them. I mean, we do, but it's a soft rebuke. It is a directing, okay, just like I told you, the pastor, when that prophecy came, he, came, he thanked the Lord for the prophecy, but he said, now we wait for that interpretation. And as we waited, it came. And if it's done as God has designed, we will be blessed. We'll be edified, I guarantee you. Verse 24, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So we're safe in the fact that, that we do church as we do. We put a very strong emphasis on the teaching of the word. And with that teaching of the word, then this is what happens is that it brings conviction into people's hearts. We saw last week we had two people that had confessed a recommitment of their life. It was by the word of God speaking to their heart that they needed to have a, a freshness and a newness in their relationship with Christ. We've had people stand up, receive Christ as their savior. That's the Holy Spirit moving and doing those things. That's very safe and it's good. This also is, uh, and when it says uh, that, that they will worship God and report that God is truly among you all. This is another quotation out of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 15. It says, truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. In other words, that, that God reveals himself through the teaching of the word and as we operate in those things. Verse 26, how is it then, brethren? Whenever one, you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for the edification. So Paul says, how is it that when you guys gather together, it's all about all of this all the time. And what's being left out is the edification of the brethren. As he has done throughout the letter, Paul addressed the Christian community in Corinth as brothers, a general term including both sexes, of course. 
hours. And when the church met, anyone was free to participate by contributing a helm or a word of instruction, a revelation from one gifted in prophecy or a word from one gifted in a tongue followed by an interpretation of what was said. The controlling principle in that free participation was the rule of love. All that was said and done was to have as its goal the need of strengthening and edifying others. It has a place today as well. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So here, Paul makes it very clear. If, you, if someone has a tongue, evidently in their church service, there are tons of people. When I say tons, we have to remember that they met in houses. The church was small gatherings of people together. They didn't have an auditorium where they could gather together everybody. But evidently within the midst of those small groups, it was like everybody had a tongue. Everybody had something to contribute. And so there was this emphasis that this is what the service was about, was the speaking of tongues. So Paul says, look, when you come together, it's okay to have someone speaking in tongues, two or three at the most, no more than that. At the end of that, then move on to another thing within the service. And so he gives us instruction there as well, that, that these things are, are what need to be a part of the church. And as a matter of fact, it's really quite interesting. If you read the church fathers, and these would be the men who, who were pastoring churches after the apostles had been, uh, you know, gone. And they were the ones that were taking the church on to that next step. They were the first generation of the apostolic ministry. And they give accounts of things that took place within the church. And well, I got to tell you, just as we see here in Corinth, they were a lively bunch. So it was, too, in the church in general, that they were a lively bunch when they gathered together. They weren't a bunch of Stoics who sat on stones and were emotionless and uninvolved in a relationship and the worship of God. Unlike what the church really has become today, you know, in my opinion, you know, you have the very stoic and you have the very non-stoic, let's just put it that way. But there needs to be that, there has to be and needs to be this reverence for God and which breeds stoicism in that, you know, the fact is, is that how, how else can I be but except for when I'm in awe of God. But it shouldn't be without emotion. It should be that it stirs my heart, that it stirs me to worship, that it stirs me to receive the word of God and to apply it into my life. And not like some show. And that's, I can go on and on and on. I'm almost out of time now, so I'm not going to. But the truth is, I think the church today has become so far off from what God would have the church to be. It's either a show or it's sterile. One of the two. Very few meet in the middle of all that. And what God wants 
is a live, live relationship with the people who are in his church. And he wants those gifts operated in our lives. He wants us to move in the spirit as he leads. And he gives us instruction so that we do not have to fear that we can embrace whatever he wants to do. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let others judge. So here he says the same thing with prophecy, with prophets. Let two or three speak and that, that should be enough. You know, then there's the teaching of the word. There's the worship of God. And then he says, let the others judge. And this is important to our section of scripture that we come to here in a moment where he talks about women being silent in the church. That, that judgment is the lead, by the leadership of the church. There's two things that we judge prophecy by. The written word of God, because God does not go beyond that. And in spite of the new apostolic movement that's out there and been out there since the 70s, uh, there is no new revelation. God is not giving men new scripture to write. He's not giving us new rules to his word. He's given us his written word. It's solidified. It's solid. And all we have to do is apply it into our lives. And that's what we judge all things by. We judge whether or not a prophecy is true if it does not contradict what God has already said in his word. Then there is the witness. The witness of the leadership in the church. Whether or not they bear witness to what is being said as being true. John speaks of it in 1 John about how, you know, God gives that, gives that gift of discernment to know, to test the spirits and to know. And he particularly gives that gift to leadership in the church because we have a responsibility to not let things that are whacked out come into the church. And I wish there were more leaders in the church who exercise that gift than what they do because there's a lot of stuff that comes in that needs not to be in there. So we judge prophecy based, first of all, by word, God's word. If somebody tells us something, if somebody says, I got a prophecy for you, and they're telling you to do something that's contrary to what God's word says for you to do, then guess what? You can count on that not being from the Lord. Simple enough. But if somebody says, I got a word for you, and I've had people give me a word, uh, supposedly from the Lord, and Nope, I knew that was not from God. And then I've had others that have given me a word. I'm, oh, yep, that's, that's the Lord. I wasn't listening, so the Lord brought somebody with a physical voice in order to speak to me. God still works that way today. He also, Calvary Chapel as a movement is the result of a, of a prophecy that was given to Pastor Chuck when he was first starting out Calvary Chapel. And an older woman in the church came up to him and told him that the Lord had told her that Pastor Chuck was going to be the pastor of many churches. Now, Chuck had already been the pastor of several churches. So Pastor Chuck knew that it was something other than that. And that prophecy proved to be true in that by the time Pastor Chuck had passed, there were over 1,500 Calvary chapels. Pastor Chuck was the pastor. He was our pastor of all the Calvaries, even though we don't answer directly to Costa Mesa and never have, but we were under the tutelage of his teaching of the word of God. And for many of us, 
I mean, if it wasn't for Pastor Chuck, you think I'm a bad teacher now. Just think what I'd be if I didn't have Chuck, right? Yeah. Prophecy is real and prophecy is profitable. And we need to embrace it as it comes. But test all things. Prove it to be true by the word of God. Verse 30. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. And here you see this, this, if you will, this etiquette of considering others more important than yourselves. That if somebody else has a word and you feel you do, uh, you know, let that person be the one that shares. 31, if, for if you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets no one is overwhelmed by prophecy and I've heard people tell me this that either in speaking in a tongue or by speaking in prophecy they couldn't help themselves that the Holy Spirit took over they were powerless to do that's not true that is contrary to what the word teaches the prophecy has always been subject to the prophets. They could help themselves. Now God by a spirit prompted them to teach and we have a couple of prophets who said, woe is me if I did not speak. They had that compulsion of the Holy Spirit. They knew that God was telling them to, but they weren't like a robot zoning out and God speaking through them. That's not the spirit of God. That's the spirit of the flesh and the devil. Verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. So now Paul gives us another part of the direction here that the churches should have order and without confusion. Verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. It is not a prohibition for women to participate in the church. It is a prohibition for women to control the church or manipulate the meeting. Paul has already assumed the right of women to pray or to prophesy publicly. We saw that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. So Paul is not saying that women should not speak in the church. So what in the world is he talking about? Here, he probably means that women do not have the right to judge prophecy, something restricted to the male leadership of the church. And instead of judging prophecy, women should be submissive to what the leadership of the church judges regarding the words of prophecy. Verse 35, he says, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for this is shameful for women to speak in the church. Once again, it is not this idea that women are to be silent and to have, they have no voice and no place within the church. So what is he talking about? Well, many believe, and I happen to agree with this, that in this time, these church services would have been fashioned the same way that a synagogue had. And you had the separation of the men and the women, each on a different side. And that whenever something was spoken of, if there was a question, that women would be speaking across in the service to their husbands, disrupting the service. And I point back to the fact that Paul is making it very clear that the services are to have order and without confusion. And so therefore he says, look, ladies, if you have a question, ask your husbands afterward. Or if you don't have a husband, ask the elders later, but don't do it in the middle of the service. 
verse 36. Or did the word of God come, to, uh, come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? So Paul is exhorting them here, thinking, saying to them, look, you think that you, you might think that you know better than me. And that what I'm telling you, you disagree with. And you think that you can just go on doing what you're doing and be okay. But Paul challenges them. He said, look, the word of God didn't come to you originally. You don't know. I'm telling you what it originally says. This is what you need to do. And so there is that strong exhortation and rebuke that they should not thank themselves to know better than what God knows or what the scripture knows. And no matter how you clothe that, no matter if you gussy that up with moving of the spirit and doing all these things, and believe me, I've been, I've been through all that, man. I came through that era where the vineyard started and all the weird stuff that they were doing, and they were a part of Calvary Chapel at one time. They were a split from Calvary Chapels. And they got into this whole thing about revelation beyond the word of God and the exercising of the Holy Spirit in such a way, weird ways. Like what they did is they had people that would come up on stage and, that, and they would vomit into bags and declaring they're casting demons out of Christians, people who were believers. So unbiblical, so unscriptural. But yet it became a practice that was, it was a huge practice within the church stupid stuff and beyond that it goes so much more I'm out of time so I can't go on but the truth is this that we look to the word of God for our answers and that alone because if we try to go beyond that we too would find ourselves in some kind of weird way that we shouldn't be verse 37 if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord Paul you know what? He wasn't a guy that was boastful and he didn't go around bragging and he didn't go around throwing his weight around, which he could. And at times he exercised that authority that God had given him. But here he makes it very clear. I'm speaking as God's speaking through me. This is God's word that I am speaking. Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 Talking about Paul, he says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of the things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Peter gives credence to Paul's writings as well as scripture from God. And even the ones that are difficult to understand like the ones we've dealt with this morning. This, these two sections here are difficult and you can go look online if you want to and find some other commentators that may say things different than I do. You're welcome to do that. I wrestled with it. This is the best I could come up with. Verse 38, but if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently in order. The conclusion of it all is this. <laughs> desire to prophesy, don't forbid the use of tongues, and whatever you do, let all things be done decently in order. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much and love you, Lord. You're so, so good to us. And I thank you, Lord, for all that you do. I thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that whatever nonsense I made out of it, that 
your Holy Spirit would make perfect sense out of it, and that we would all be edified and built up and encouraged, that we'd be challenged to let your Holy Spirit work in us and to give us the gifts that you've intended for the edification of the church. And I thank you, Father, for what you're doing. And I thank you that you have called us to this. And I thank you that the promise is to any and all who would call upon your name and ask for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder this morning if any of you are here that you realize that, that you, you've been lacking in that, in your relationship with Christ, that, that you would like the gifts of the Spirit, whatever it is that the Spirit would give to you as a gift. And I can't tell you what that is. Only he can. But yet you've never invited him to come. You've never asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the immersing of the Holy Spirit. And that the Spirit would be given an opportunity to pour himself out on you, that he would give you gifts that you could exercise within the body of Christ for the edification of the church. If you've never done that and you would like to, raise your hand this morning that I can pray with you to do that. Anybody at all? Okay. So, Father, I thank you and I praise you for your word, for your Holy Spirit, and for all that you're going to do. For we've yet to see it all. And, Lord, we love you so much and thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Remember what that is, right? I, amen. I agree. Would you stand, please? Now, strengthen you, may he keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and give you peace. May he bless your day today, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.